Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. So Jason, I was one of those people who always, you know, people would mention meditation to me and I'd be like, what, you just want me to like sit and be silent for an hour? Like that sounds insane. That sounds like the last thing I want to do. And I resisted for many years the idea of meditation. But then somebody, you know, years ago, way before Headspace was a sponsor of this podcast, somebody recommended Headspace to me and it got me hooked on meditation and really changed the way I show up and and allowed me to be so much more present in my life. And one of the reasons why is it kind of guides you through the process of meditation step by step so that you start with baby steps. And then before you know it, you come out the other side and you're actually doing deep, meaningful things. And so I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, I was exactly the same way. I I had tried uh, meditation a few times, never worked for me. And then uh, my wife introduced me to Headspace a few years ago and it 100% works. It's like a big part of my life now. Every one of you could sign up today for a one month free trial by going to headspace.com slash m54. That's headspace.com slash m54 for a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. And that's the best deal offered right now. So go to headspace.com slash m54 today and you get to support our show uh, in the process. And and I just want to add on at the end, like, seriously, this is something we, we really believe in and we, we both use. And uh, it's been a big part of my recovery and that sort of thing over the last couple of years. So headspace.com slash M54. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, what's going on this week? Well, uh, there's a ton of COVID news this week. I think most notably and hopefully the UK has begun vaccinating its citizens as of Tuesday. And as they're beginning the process of vaccinating their citizens, you know, countries around the world are beginning to lock up the, you know, very critical supply of vaccines coming from the various companies that have gone through trials. And one issue that's, you know, lurking on the horizon is is the potential for a scarcity of vaccines in this early phase as we start to vaccinate um, citizens. And, and news came out this week that the Trump administration had actually turned down Pfizer's offer to sell us 400 million additional doses uh, in late summer. And it's unclear exactly what was going on there. But one thing is clear is that the U.S. is not at the front of the line and um, for a lot of these companies. And it could get dicey, especially if some of the, the uh, yet-to-be-approved vaccine candidates don't get approved early. Uh, and so that's one big issue that's just lurking on the horizon. It's interesting to me because I was reading this article, and first, it's pretty telling that despite the fact 
that the world is an unfair place and therefore wealthy nations are going to get this vaccine faster, we still won't fully benefit from that like privilege that I, I'm a little uncomfortable that we have to begin with. But I have to assume that this is because Pfizer, I think they weren't part of Operation Warp Speed, right? Yeah, uh, it's hard to figure out what's going on here, especially given the fact that the U.S. I have I have the same mixture of emotions that you have, right? Which is the the right to live should be universal, and you'd and you yet just, we live here. Yeah, and there's a survival instinct. Yeah, there's a survival instinct, but then there's just also this political point, which is we've been subsidizing the pharmaceutical industry uh, yeah. for a long time, and one of the arguments against you know, for instance, allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drugs is that if we didn't overpay for prescriptions in the United States, the pharmaceutical industry uh, wouldn't survive in its current form. Which, let's say for a second that that's true. Let's pretend for a second that U.S. is subsidizing innovation within the pharmaceutical industry. We certainly are subsidizing their profits. If that were true, you would think that whether you like it or not, the U.S. should be able to get to the front of the line and be able to get any amount of the vaccine that it wants. Like, once again, putting aside the moral point, which I think is the most important point, but just from the strict policy here, it's very confusing as to how we got to this point. Well, it's also funny because if you think about the Trump administration's logic on so many other things, like they just make up the idea that we pay a disproportionate amount to NATO and therefore, you know, we're not getting what we're, you know, we weren't getting, they claim, what we were paying for. And then stuff like, well, you know, we invaded Iraq, we should just take their oil. But in this case, I guess it doesn't apply. My favorite part of this, or to me, the most Trumpian part of all this, is the executive order proclaiming that other countries will not get it before us. <laughs> like, right? So, so he's proclaiming that a company that is not headquartered in the United States will honor a deal that was previously offered to the United States, but the United States rejected. So I was thinking about this, Robbie. If things could be done this way, I have a few things I'd like to proclaim. Uh, <laughs> first, the NBA's Kansas City Kings never actually left for Sacramento. And though they may still play in Sacramento and go by that name, they have in fact been and will always continue to be the Kansas City Kings. Their home games will henceforth be played at T-Mobile Arena in downtown Kansas City. And despite his recent contract extension with the Lakers, LeBron James is now the starting point guard for the Kansas City Kings. And finally, Donald Trump chose in 2015 to do another season of The Apprentice rather than run for president. I have hereby proclaimed these things. Well, you know, I think maybe we should rebrand these executive orders, uh, executive suggestions, maybe. Uh, yeah, his and mine. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there was, uh, there, there's so much COVID news, but one... One thing I want to highlight, which isn't big news, but I think is maybe the beginning of a trend, is that the Senate held a hearing yesterday. You know, we're recording this as usual on Wednesday. The Senate Homeland Security Committee, chaired by Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, held a committee yesterday where only three of 14 senators showed up. Uh, and it was Ron Johnson, Rand Paul, and Josh Hawley. Uh, and the reason why there was such low attendance is that a lot of the witnesses were cranks, essentially. Um, and one of those was this woman named Jane Orient, uh, who's the head of a very official-sounding organization, but basically is an anti-vaxxer. And she's previously said that she has, uh, quote, serious, uh, she, she has concerns about a serious intrusion into individual liberty, autonomy, and parental decisions that vaccinations would cause. She used her time, among other people, used her time to rail against mask mandates, but also mask use, uh, where she and multiple uh, witnesses yesterday just basically were saying that masks are useless, which flies in the face of most, if not all, science I've seen. Um, 
And the reason why I highlight this isn't because uh, that one hearing is big news, but because uh, you had some, you had at least two prominent members of the GOP in that hearing giving lip service to these arguments. And so I wanted to use this as an opportunity to just stop and fully understand what's going on uh, on the GOP as it relates to this argument about freedom and liberty with regards to vaccines and masks. Jason, I think like we basically understand the argument, right? Which is the government shouldn't tell us what to do. And in particular, when it comes to vaccines, the government shouldn't force me to do something that I think is unsafe for me or for my children. And so on the face of it, it can sound pretty convincing, especially to people who don't see a lot of upside to getting the vaccine. Um, Jason, what what could listeners uh, do to kind of counter that kind of argument, which I think is playing out all across this country? So I think this is one that we've sort of seen before, right? Like we saw it on the on the uh, Obamacare mandate. We've seen it, you know, you see it in, in a lot of different areas. We've seen it in vaccines before, right? So I think the first thing is, if someone is saying this, I think the first thing you have to do is you have to, for lack of a better term, diagnose exactly what level of mania you're dealing with, right? Like, are they an anti-vaxxer across the board? Because if so, well, then you've got a much you've got a much bigger hill to climb. But if they are somebody who like, if their kids have gotten, you know, the polio vaccine and, uh, you know, the, the standard vaccines that you get in order to go to school, well, then I think you could just start with, well, why do you oppose just this vaccine? Why do you oppose masks, but you, you, you go ahead and go along with the other public health measures that are taken and you try and move it into that category. But in general, I think that you just have to make the argument that you personalize it and you say, look, I deserve you know, I, I think I should have the right to be free of illness and have the liberty to travel safely. And I think the analogy is freedom is and liberty, they're like a giant bubble that surrounds each of us. And they're only protected to the extent that they don't unreasonably pop other people's bubbles. Like you don't have the freedom to drive your car 100 miles an hour without insurance because that might harm someone else. So at the moment at which your bubble is intruding into someone else's bubble, that's when it's no longer a question of, of freedom and liberty. It's a it's a question of uh, intrusion on other people's freedom and liberty. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's one of these things that we call a public good, right? And it's a little bit complicated because the public good that we're talking about is this concept of herd immunity, right? And so uh, herd immunity, there are a couple of things to keep in mind here. And now I know that this is not exactly what you're going to be talking about, like in this way at the at the Christmas table or or the Hanukkah table, if there is such a thing, Jason, you let me know. Boy, eight nights uh, in a row with yeah, your family, if, if they disagree with you, it could be rough. That's a lot. Uh, I don't think we'd make it past night two in Staten Island. But uh, <laughs> the, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that any vaccine is not going to be 100% effective. So there are going to be some segment of people who get a vaccine who are still at risk because of the virus. The second is that herd immunity only works usually at when you get 90 to 95% of a population vaccinated. So when you put those two things together, uh, the public good, which is the herd immunity, is really important because there's always going to be a segment of the population that because of just the way that vaccines work are still at risk of getting it. And if you don't get the vaccine, you don't contribute to us getting to the 95%, which means that you're putting those people at risk who took the vaccine, but who still can get it. You're also putting people at risk who have allergies to the vaccine and who can't take it. And you're also putting everybody at risk if we don't get to 90 to 95%. And, and it's one of those things that they call non-excludable in the sense that you get the benefit from it, even if you don't take the vaccine. So it's, you could be really selfish about it if we don't have good policy here. 
Well, yeah, I think an additional analogy like on the public good front is school, right? Like if you send your kid to private school or you homeschool your kid, you know, there are people who object to this, but it's it's the, the case that you still pay your property tax or whatever it is in your community that funds the schools. Well, why do we do that? Because there is a greater public good, you know, even just than education itself. There, There's everything we know about how it decreases crime. It increases, you know, economic prosperity to make sure that every kid can actually go to school, whether you choose to take advantage of the public school system or not. So even if you take all of the science out of it and you take herd immunity out of it, just the fact that if we don't get to those levels, you know, the economy is not going to fully come back to functioning. I mean, the things that you want to do in the world, the ball games you want to go to, you're not going to be able to do those. So there's all sorts of public goods that are going to come back your way if you're a part of this system. And then just as an aside, having an anti-vaxxer testify on this reminds me of a story about my first time uh, presenting a witness in court ever. Uh, it was I was brand new at my law firm and I got appointed to take this case. You know, people may not know that uh, attorneys who are not even public interest attorneys are regularly appointed to handle cases in court for people who can't afford an attorney. And, I, and it happens oftentimes in family court. So I was appointed to handle this family court case, this really sad story of this woman uh, whose uh, child had died of shaken baby syndrome. And it had been like an ex-boyfriend who, who uh, had done this. And now she had moved on with her life and she had other kids and she wanted to get her other kids back. And I, I thought, okay, absolutely. I got to help this lady. I was appointed to do it. I was trying to help her get her kids back. And the witness I had to present was the former uh, coroner, the former you know medical examiner for my county. And, and he's like, absolutely a hundred percent. This was not shaken baby syndrome. And I'm thinking I have man, I've got a great case here. And I'm a brand new lawyer. I didn't think to like Google the guy. So I put him on the stand and he gives what I think is really compelling testimony. And then the uh, lawyer for the county gets up and says, "Um, is it or is it not true that you are the world's leading expert on the theory that there's no such thing as shaken baby syndrome. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, well, that's true. And I was like, okay, well, that was the first time I ever well, presented a witness in court. How did that guy become court. a coroner? I mean, how did I stay a lawyer is a better yeah, question. No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have some news on the transition. Biden has continued to name senior members of his administration, including um, Attorney General uh, of California, Becerra, uh, to HHS, uh, General retired General Lloyd Austin to defense, Marsha Fudge to HUD, Tom Vilsack back to AG. And there's a lot of news on the transition, mainly that it just continues afoot. We just were greeted with news that the Supreme Court has rejected uh, GOP efforts to overturn Pennsylvania's results. And essentially, as of this recording, every state has certified their results. And there have been just repeated failures uh, from the Trump team and the GOP to try to overturn these results in one state after another. And uh, we wish Rudy Giuliani the best, by the way, who uh, has now been hospitalized with coronavirus, sidelining Trump's top lawyer uh, in this effort. But yet, despite all of that, the many senior members of the GOP and elected GOP representatives still refuse to acknowledge that Joe Biden was the winner. So the Washington Post contacted 249 Republicans in the House and Senate and found just 27 who were willing to acknowledge Biden's victory. Jason, is it possible that we're going to wind up getting through inauguration with huge segments of elected GOP representatives not recognizing the president of the United States? And and what does that even mean? I think we'll probably get to like 2024 into the campaign uh, that way. I mean, 
It's really sad, right? I mean, so I'll say one really sad thing about this and then a good thing, a silver lining of all this craziness that's happened lately. So the sad thing is that it's it's not really that these members of Congress don't recognize Biden as the president-elect. I mean, they personally do. They know. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the threat of primaries and of the, you know, the shape of their districts that there's tons of disincentive for them to recognizing reality. And I don't just mean about this, like about many things, like there's a disincentive to recognizing reality, but also by the way, in the media space, I mean, I saw that there's spots where Newsmax has better ratings right now than Fox. I mean, so everybody's got their constituency. And so recognizing reality is coming at a cost. And then there's virtually no incentive for these folks to uh, actually recognize reality. And and so, yeah, I, it concerns me. I mean, think about the last three decades of, of presidents, like almost three decades that we've we've been through. You know, you have the attempted impeaching uh, President Clinton. And even before that, in many ways, because he won, you know, in a plurality in 92, they acted like he wasn't legitimate to begin with. And then you have our reaction, our side's reaction to uh, Bush winning without the popular vote. And in many ways, not viewing him, whether you regarded as right or wrong, not viewing him as a fully legitimate president. Um, and then you go to 08. I mean, just in general, the way they treated President Obama the entire the birtherism, way. Birtherism. Yeah. Birtherism. Exactly. And then, and then you get, you know, again, the popular vote issue combined with Russian meddling in the election and then combined with, again, impeachment. Like we are getting to a point where the presidency is becoming something that it is perfectly acceptable. Uh, and in some cases, look, I think we were right, but, but Either way, it's become a cultural mainstay that the legitimacy of the presidency is something that it's within bounds entirely to uh, doubt its legitimacy. And and the problem with that in this case, I think, is that there's there's no basis. Like now we've arrived at the point where we've so eroded this standard that there's no basis whatsoever for it. And they're going to do it anyway. It makes it a lot harder to govern. Now, the one good thing of the last few weeks is it appears to me that all of these insane attempts by President Trump to try and get Republicans to, you know, not uh, to, to instruct electors not to go along with the, with the vote results to, you know, all these things to basically create a coup. It is a good thing that he has attempted that and that it has across the board failed because every single thing, good or bad, sets a precedent. And now at least we have one thing where it's like, he tried to break down this norm and it wouldn't break. That's at least one silver lining out of this. Yeah, it's like it, I have this competing emotions of you know being happy that the the norm didn't break, but really alarmed at how close we got here and how many Republicans didn't do the right thing, and it just it it makes you wonder what comes next. You know when you know I always you know what I've been left thinking is what if it were way closer? Then how bad would things be? But it, you know what. We're not in that world, so why worry about it today? You might as well worry about tomorrow's problems tomorrow, right? But the hope the hope is that like with the electors thing and this attempted coup, the hope is is that it's one of those situations where because the attempt was made and it was unsuccessful, that it's sort of like the bone has hardened and calcified. I mean, that's the hope, right? That if in the, if Trump wasn't able to break that norm, then perhaps that norm is only strengthened. That's my hope. Yeah, and one thing I'm hoping for, and maybe it's it's just as foolish to to put uh, future hopes on the table today as much as it is to future worries. But one one hope I have is that we win both seats in Georgia for many reasons. But one of which is that it it would be a cl very close repudiation 
of Trump's tactics here, given the meddling, the explicit meddling he's having uh, in that election, and how much that seems to be an issue in that election right now, and hopefully it becomes a bigger and bigger one. Well, on to Quarantine Corner. Jason, what's been going on in your world this week? So I finally shaved my mustache and, uh, you I've know. noticed, I was a fan, I'm a fan both ways, so. Yeah, thanks, I appreciate it. That's very diplomatic. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, Diana said, you know, that was fun. I think that's over. Uh, and actually the story about me shaving my mustache has to do with books, which is that uh, I went and borrowed a bunch of books from my dad. My dad has this pretty good library of books that he's read over many years. And I borrowed a bunch of books from my dad and I came back and my wife looked at the pile of books I brought back and it was like World War II books and like like I'm currently reading a book that is a memoir of a B-17 bomber pilot through flight training and you know combat in World War II and Diana goes so the mustache is like that's like just a symptom right like you're just becoming your dad like that's what's <laughs> happening so I'm coming to terms with that uh I, I'm now just borrowing books from my dad and uh and the books are just second generation in the family now well what's the name of the book uh, it is called The Lucky Bastards Club. And I'm, I'm, you know, about 30 pages in. It's all right. It's not a huge page turner. I think I'm going to skip around in it. What percentage of books you've read this year are World War II books? Would you would you put it at? Uh, it's like it's it's like sixty percent. I mean, it's yeah. in, in, in previous you. years. In previous years, I didn't even read war books, so it would have been zero percent. But now I do that, and uh, it's growing. It's yeah, it's fa it's fascinating time. Yeah, it's 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 something about that period of time. A lot of my favorite books are from that that period of time too. Uh, not necessarily the war, but the era too. I like the era. I just like it's something about it. Uh, well, uh, I'm reading a book called These Truths by Jill Lepore, uh, who's a, a Harvard professor of history and a, a New York uh, New Yorker writer, and it's it's an expansive history of the United States. And I basically got myself into a bit of a bind here because I like to read physical books. And I bought like a, a sack of books out here. And now I've read every book but this book by Jill Lepore, which is like this humongous history book. <laughs> and it's actually not easy to come by physical books over here. I now am, am backed into reading um, a very detailed history of the US, but she's an amazing writer. And it's basically if you took people's history like Howard Zinn, but made it more hefty and a little bit more I would say, um, like, I would stay still critical, but also mixes the critical parts of American history with a celebration of also what makes us special in a good way, too. So it kind of it kind of balances both, uh, but doesn't shy away from the hard questions about our history. So it's really good. I, I recommend it, even though I, it's really big and it's going to take me a second to finish. Sounds like one I'll be looking up on Blinkist. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good call. I honestly have like I have a hard time sleeping when I'm away from home because I've adjusted to this Helix mattress so well. And one of the reasons why is that they give you this quiz. You take a quiz and you tell them all about your sleep habits. And uh, you and I both came out uh, the same way in the quiz, which is uh, because we sleep on our sides, among other things. We got the Lux Midnight mattress. And damn, I, I really miss that mattress, Jason. You know, you make a really good point. I think I was I was almost certainly in my 30s when I even learned that a mattress was something that had to be replaced at some point. And it's like, my back hurts. Why? And it's like like eight or nine years ago, somebody was like, how long have you had the same mattress? Uh, and now I'm like, I'm like a mattress, like, 
expert. Like I, I need a very specific thing. And in this case, yes, it is, it is Helix. And so, so does everybody else listening to this. Uh, so you can take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, you can add on sheets and pillows or whatever else you need for your bed. And then the mattress comes right to your door. Uh, you don't ever have to go to a mattress store again. You just go to helixsleep.com slash majority 54. You take their two minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a customized mattress. That'll give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you're going to love it. So Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority54. Do you listen to podcasts? Of course you do. You're listening to one right now. And if you like podcasts, you'll love Stitcher. Uh, the all-new Stitcher is the easiest way to discover and listen to podcasts for free across iOS and Android. Stitcher gives you access to your latest episodes, downloads, and your favorite shows all in one convenient spot. It's podcast listening made simple the way it should be. And Stitcher is home to some of your favorite podcasts and some of my favorites like Armchair Expert, Smartless, This American Life. And uh, you'll be able to find anything on there, including Majority 54. And with Stitcher, you can listen to your podcast anytime, anywhere. You could be listening at your desk on the revamped web player or on your phone. Majority 54 has never sounded better. So give the all new Stitcher a try. Download it in the app store or at stitcherapp.com slash majority 54. Well, in this week in misinformation, uh, in Science Magazine, uh, published a uh, study from uh, some folks over at MIT, which looked at 126,000 stories, 3 million users uh, over 10 years in Twitter. And basically came to the conclusion that fake news and false rumors are infinitely more popular on Twitter and penetrate way deeper than the truth. The key takeaway here is they looked at the influence of bots and they news isn't propagating uh, false news isn't propagating because of bots. They actually found that bots are as likely to propagate real news as fake news. But it has something more to do with our human nature um, and what we're inherently interested in. Um, and so it's really, the answer is within us, Jason, and this makes it maybe even scarier because there's not just one villain here. Like maybe the, the villain is looking back at us in the mirror. What should our listeners do about this because you know so much of what we're trying to do is fight fake news but um it seems like a, like like you know like like rubbernecking on the highway we just can't help ourselves yeah it uh, I, while you were explaining this i was actually looking up the mark twain quote you know a lie can travel around the world and back again while the truth is lacing up its boots uh which you know it just it's about emotion and what feels true and you know you just toss it up there. And like, I, I think you're right. It's on all of us. Like I've been guilty of this and, and I've always tried to clarify or, or correct or delete. And I've finally gotten pretty good about really checking something beforehand before I, you know, throw it out there uh, on social media. But I guess we could all take more pride in trying to do that. But I definitely also think that Twitter and Facebook and, and you know, the, the platforms can take a heavier hand. And, and we have all these rules for television and radio but actually none for social media, despite the fact that it now has probably a greater influence on public opinion than the other mediums. Uh, so, I, you know, if I, could maybe, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd say, 
we should instruct the FCC to, to regulate this area, even, even if that means like a large compliance cost to the tech companies. Like, I just don't think they have an absolute right to make money off of content that is untrue and that is hurtful no matter what it says. I don't think that's like an unmitigated right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of damning uh, stuff in this in this report, and you know, one one piece is that falsehoods are six times more likely to propagate fast into the internet, and by definition, of fast is to reach fifteen hundred people. They said false information uh, spreads faster than truth across all subjects, but guess which subject it spreads fastest? I'm gonna go with politics. Exactly, uh, and so we're we're in the belly of the beast here. And they had two theories, and you hit on one of them. They had two theories as to why false information uh, spreads. One is the novelty of it, right? Like the truth is always going to be a little boring, right? But but there's a novelty to to falsehoods that make it uh, exciting. Uh, and second is the emotional appeal, as you said. So uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna get worked up over it. The other side is gonna you know people like everybody's just gonna keep getting worked up over it and sharing things. And in the process, we're we're putting it in front of more and more people who actually become persuaded by it over time. I, I also think it's really important for us to remember that emotional aspect in this sense that you know if you have like a relative or a friend who's spreading stuff that you know is incorrect on on social media, it is not enough just to go onto their page or whatever and, and prove that it's not correct. Because what you have to get at are the emotions underneath. Because we hear people say all the time, well, I don't know if this is right, but you know, this seems right to me, right? So the point is like, you could disprove their individual anecdote or the example that they're offering, but you're still in many cases not changing their mind. You have to do what we're always trying to do on the show, which is get under that and get out the emotional underpinnings of it and try and sort of, you know, unlock those and, and shake those loose. I wonder if, you know, if you ever watched the show Mad Men and you go back and you watch that show and everybody's smoking cigarettes uh, and you're like, wow, like, I can't believe people didn't realize like how harmful this was and how insane it is in, in hindsight. I wonder if people are going to look back at us glued to our phones and addicted to all these different sites like Twitter and Instagram, et cetera, and be like, what were they thinking? I would, you'd, you'd hope and expect that that would have to be true. I hope that that's what happens as opposed to it being like they look back and it being more like when they watch Mad Men and they're like, can you believe they didn't have cell phones? Like, so instead <laughs> people are looking yeah. back and they're like, can you believe they had to physically look at an object in their hand instead of just hit their temple and dial it up in their, in their viewfinder? You know, like... I hope that's the, I, you know, I hope, yeah. I hope you're right. Yeah. Um, well, you know, inevitably there is a reaction to this and you're starting to see it now amongst people who are doing digital detoxes and there's like addiction counseling for phones and stuff like that, but it hasn't become societal yet, which is what I'm hoping for. I just hope it gets to me. Like I just need to, <laughs> Yeah. I need the help. <laughs> so. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Well, let's give out a few awards. Uh, I'm going to give a Lindsey Graham uh, Total Submissile and Capitulation Award to Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is uh, obviously auditioning for something uh, more than U.S. Senator. And uh, this past week, he offered to argue the Pennsylvania election case before the Supreme Court. Now, as I mentioned before, that case, uh, the Supreme Court has declined to take up that case. But it's it just reminds you of... Uh, you know, these stories that we all read as kids, like the emperor has no clothes, etc. And just like, what, what was, what were people like Ted Cruz reading or what, what stories were they watching? Like, I think, I think of this movie, The Death of Stalin, where, you know, a really funny movie, if you haven't seen it yet, it's amazing, 
where basically Stalin's cadre of aides, like while he was on his deathbed and then when he died, were all jockeying to impress. Uh, and it's like so obvious in that context um, how craven and ridiculous it was. And it's like, does Ted Cruz ever look in the mirror and just say, wow, like, what am I anymore? Like, what have I become? I guess not. I mean, you're saying like, what is he reading? What is he looking at? Like, Ted Cruz is just one of these guys. He runs to daylight. And the daylight is sort of where is there available space within the, you know, electoral ladder, right? Within this this uh, pyramid, where can I stake myself out? And he's like, oh, I could I could get quite a lot of mentions for doing this. And what I think is important about this is like, Ted Cruz is a smart dude. Like he knows, I mean, heck, the case didn't even get taken. He knew that if it did, it was a loser of a case, but that's not the point. The point is not achieving a victory for your side. The The point is being willing to do the stupid stuff. And, and that's what's, that's what I think is so sad about it. And it's why it's total capitulation and submissile because like Ted Cruz is, I'm sure, I mean, wasn't, he was like Texas solicitor general. Like I'm sure he's a very effective uh, attorney when it comes to oral argument. And, you know, this is what politics, particularly for really ambitious people does. It just debases you. It just, it's not dignified, man. Uh, not, not when it's done in a way that has no allegiance to beliefs at all. So it's just sad, man. It's just sad. Not to mention the propriety of somebody who votes for the confirmation of people then arguing in front of them. You know? Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. I mean, there's a separation of powers issue here, which he, you know, would only care about if it were a Democratic senator who did this. Well, all right. I, I'm going to call this the Giving Us Some Hope Award. Uh, this fellow, Gabriel Gabriel Sterling, who is the voting systems implementation manager in Georgia. He stood up this week, or I guess it was last week, and he said, look, this is all crazy. All of these you know, death threats against election officials, this calling for the overturning of the election. It has all gone too far. Mr. President... You have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. We need you to step up, and if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. Clearly, this guy is a conservative, um, but you know, I looked him up. He, he's a he's a Republican. I mean, his the, literally the first word in his bio on social media is conservative. Period. But he understands that this isn't about ideology. It's just about reality and being more invested in the country than in winning. Like, And that's the thing that used to be really normal, I think, right? Like being more invested in the game continuing than winning the game. Uh, so, you know, that gives us some hope. Yeah, I wonder just what this does to the psychology of the electorate in Georgia. And, and I mean that in the strictest sense. Like, I do wonder. Like, I don't, I don't have an opinion yet. Uh, and you and I had a conversation offline last week about this, which is just that it's hard to put yourself in the head of Trump voters who are answering polls saying they think the election was rigged. Uh, and what we talked about was if you and I thought the election was rigged and our candidate lost, or, or even as you mentioned, our candidate won, but if there was a rigged election, we'd be protesting in the streets. We wouldn't let it go, right? Now, there are some protests and some of them are not looking good, but by and large, they're small. We should still take them seriously, especially when they harass people like Jocelyn Benson from Michigan at our house. But they're small. Like you're not seeing like the vast majority of Republicans who are answering polls saying that they think the election was rigged. 
acting the way we would act if we thought it was rigged. And or I don't know any what rational to do person, that. right? Like, yeah. I mean, I, your point is a good one. Like, if they if they're not being disingenuous, like if people really think that this election was stolen, what are they doing staying home? Right. Now, stay home, please, everybody. Well, like, yeah, I know, you know what I mean. Oh, no, no, I know. I'm kidding. But like, obviously, oh, yeah, nobody yeah. listening to this podcast is like going to is, is in that camp. But obviously, we're not encouraging anybody to do anything other than stay home on this. But it's it's very puzzling. And, I, and I've learned and you helped coach me through this last week. Like, I've learned not to overreact to that and be like, all right, we're going to win Georgia because there's like, you know, people are have lost confidence in the vote. I just honestly don't know what to make of it. The electorate is behaving in very strange ways over the past few cycles. Yeah, and yet it seems really resilient to at least the Republican electorate, like just when we learned this in November, um, tends to turn out at its max capacity, right? Like it just, it what what it, I mean, it was not a close election uh, at the presidential level, really. And that's because something happened that rarely happens, which is the Democratic electorate turned out at its max capacity. But the Republican electorate just turns out. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, some of them are that these tend to be folks who are less likely to have uh, consequences at work if they, you know, if they go vote, they have fewer lines and all that kind of stuff, Long, you know, shorter lines where they live, all that kind of stuff. But like, yeah, I, it's really hard to predict. For grabbing ore this week, uh, I'm going to go in for a little break from things. I'm, I'm not going to go in a political direction. I'm just going to take uh, the privilege of uh, plugging the organization that I lead, Veterans Community Project. We are now building a, a village of tiny houses for homeless veterans in uh, in Colorado, just outside Denver. And we've now secured land and are going to start doing the same in St. Louis. We're looking at other cities around the country. And we are not uh, funded by public funds. We are uh, funded privately. And people can go to veteranscommunityproject.org and uh, make a donation. I would encourage you to do so, and I, and I really uh, appreciate it. You know, a great holiday gift is the Grab an Ore t-shirts uh, that, you know, both Ravi and I have uh, that Bonfire created with us in a, in a partnership with, with us and with our network, Wonder Media Network. You can get one of these Grab an Ore t-shirts. You can gift it. You can just get it for yourself. That's fine, too. Uh, you go to wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire. I would encourage you to get one. They're very cool. I wear mine all the time, and uh, it gets people asking, uh, what does that mean? That's cool. And then I get to talk about the show, which I appreciate. Uh, so thanks so much for listening. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard, and theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.